Mind 10 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us again to continue through the book of Revelation. We're in the middle of John giving us a recap of the story of redemptive history before we get to the third set of judgments, which are the bold judgments. In the last episode, we saw a picture of the unholy trinity, which was Satan, the beast, and the second beast, who's also known as the false prophet, and their plan to gain victory by requiring the earth's people to be marked with their unholy tattoo, symbolizing bowing down to them. And this would be like confessing Caesar is Lord or joining the trade guilds at that time. People in the seven churches that John wrote to would have needed this type of thing in order to earn a living and not get in trouble. And Chris, as we talked about, we can easily see how this happens today. Oh, we can. I mean, we just saw this year how quickly the world was willing to give up their freedoms under pressure from their governments with the help of the scare tactics from the media. And they did it despite persistent and consistent facts that were saying this virus wasn't any more deadly than the flu. And many people keep asking if the vaccine they're coming up with is the mark of the beast. Well, the truth is, Rose, that if you are at some point required to get the COVID vaccine to freely shop and do business, then it would be somewhat like being a member of the trade guilds. But unless you're required to sin as part of getting it, it isn't. Is it the one world currency mark that some believe we're going to be required to get? Well, Scripture doesn't give evidence that there is going to be a one-world currency mark like the futurists and left-behinders believe. Right, and this mark in Revelation has to do with being forced to comply with something sinful, like if we didn't have freedom to worship. Yeah. That does happen all around the world, and as I said, could happen and is happening with COVID closures here to a certain extent, and it could certainly get worse. And it's going to keep happening until Jesus comes back. It's not the same end time thing. And all through history, it hasn't helped that God's people have been infiltrated by false prophets and teachers in abundance, trying to keep them from learning God's word correctly or telling them that it's okay to be like the world. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. Whether they're doing it on purpose or whether they just don't know the Bible correctly themselves, it's a big problem. And today, they have a worldwide stage. Yeah, they do. You know, getting back to talking about the mark of the beast, Jesus didn't just leave his revelation there with news of the whole world being in doom and gloom. We feel like that now. (laughs) At least some of us do. But we're going to see that Jesus gives believers reason to have hope. Reasons that might be shocking to some, especially to those who have Jesus pictured in their minds holding a lamb and having shampoo model hair, as we say all the time. Yeah, if that's the image you have of Jesus, you might be getting a whole new picture of him today. Yes. So let's get started, Chris. Uh, Revelation 14, 1 to 5 says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. 
It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found for they are blameless. Okay. So the first thing we see here is Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Mount Zion's a picture of heaven from the Old Testament, as we see in Obadiah, the place where God's people possess their inheritance, and where the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore, according to Micah 4, 7. And Jesus is here with the 144,000, the symbol of the church from chapter 7. These are those who could stand. Well, here's a picture of them standing on Mount Zion. It's actually a picture of the already victorious saints who've made it through. Their victory over sin, Satan, and death was won by the shed blood of the Lamb. Being sealed with the Holy Spirit, they've been able to stand their ground, and now they're reigning with Christ from Mount Zion. Chris, this is a picture from an army's vantage point, the high point, the place of looking down on your enemies. Yeah, it is. This picture is based on Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm called the reign of the Lord's anointed. Revelation 14 is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, where the nations and their kings are raging and plotting against Jesus, but King Jesus is on Zion, the holy hill, with his holy army. There's a lot of war imagery throughout the Bible, because it is a war. Jesus doesn't need people to fight for him now. He's already won the battle, and I want to be clear about that, because I see people spreading memes around And usually it's like a person dressed in some old school battle armor. But that's the wrong picture. The war we fight against is sin. A believer has the Holy Spirit living inside of him or her. And that gives them the ability to say no to sin. Chris, it's a spiritual battle. Yeah, that's right. I see that meme all the time too. And it's crazy. You know, and you and I both get that they're drawing that picture from the armor of God passage. But I, like you, think that picture leads people totally off in their thinking. I mean, picturing yourself fighting sin isn't nearly as fun as putting yourself in some sort of battle gear with a real sword. <laughs> but yeah, no one said this is about fun. Fighting against your sin is not fun. No, it's not. And we're not physically fighting Satan and his demons. We can't. No. And in fact, even rebuking Satan is wrong. Jude 1.9 tells us, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord will rebuke you. We aren't physically fighting with a sword, fun as that might be. And we shouldn't even rebuke Satan if the archangel Michael didn't. That's God's job. Okay, so let's talk about the heavenly tattoos on our foreheads. The names of Jesus and the Father, according to verse 1, is what it says. Now, that is not an actual mark on the forehead. At least, most likely it's not. What it is, is a sign meaning ownership. And in this case, the owners are the Father and the Son. The indwelling Holy Spirit is the seal. This mark stands in direct contrast to the mark of the beast that we saw in the last episode. This mark is the mark of perfect completeness. And as you're saying that, I'm reminded that everything in Scripture involves all three persons of the Trinity. It's never a solo act. Absolutely. Good point. But the question for people who are listening is to ask themselves, who am I owned by, Satan or God? You either worship Satan and the things of this world, or you worship God. There's no in-between. To quote Jesus, where does your treasure lie? What are your idols? Is it money, your family? Is it looking like you've got it all together? Yeah, and those type of questions are important questions. 
So next, John hears a voice from heaven that's described as Jesus' voice. And next, the voices of the saved multitude worshiping God, singing a new song that only they could learn, according to the scripture. They're singing in heaven. And Rose, I think it's appropriate to point out here that just like the mark on the foreheads of the saints is a direct contrast to the mark of the beast, the sounds here are in direct contrast to Revelation 18.22's description of the plight of the wicked. It says, The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. Well, I love music, so that sounds horrible. But as we're going to see, that's not even close to the worst of what unbelievers face on that last day. But this new song sung by the saints is a celebration of God's triumph over sin, Satan, and death through Jesus. God's people always have celebrated his victory over their enemies throughout Scripture. Yeah, the first time I heard that Christians will actually be rejoicing and cheering over the wicked being judged in the final judgment, I was kind of taken back. But the more I studied, that's exactly what it says. And if you think back to the Old Testament, God's people did always rejoice at the destruction of the wicked. Now, I know some people are offended by that. They think that Christians are supposed to be kinder and sweeter and nicer than that makes a sound. But that's the way it is. Yeah, as Dr. Bauckham says, the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. Yes. And he says it sarcastically, obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> never listen to him. <laughs> and that goes along with them never thinking of Jesus as anything but merciful. He certainly is merciful, but that's not all he is. They disregard his justice. But I think that when we realize God's holiness and his right as creator to destroy his enemies, we're on the right track about how we should be thinking about who God is. I agree. And in this picture from Revelation, believers are pure and they're exclusively devoted to Jesus. They will want sin and sinners gone. I mean, for them, there's no more having one foot in the world and one foot with God. We should be fighting against having that now in our lives. But in heaven, believers won't even have one pinky toenail devoted to the world anymore. They're pure. And let's talk about that purity for a minute. The saints, these clean, spotless, blameless virgins, as they're called, who have not defiled themselves with women, are contrasted with wicked Babylon, which is a picture of gross idolatry, and that's referred to using derogatory sexual terms. So, Chris, this is about idolatry and sin, not just sexual sin. No, it's not. Like you said, this isn't about sex, although sexual immorality could be what fits the bill for some people. Just to explain, those who aren't defiled by women is a military reference about abstaining from sex during holy war. That was one of God's rules for holy war, and they were supposed to follow it. An example of not doing that uh, was King David. When he got in trouble with Bathsheba, he should have been out to war and abstaining from sex. As we know from the Garden of Eden, though, our ancestors wanted autonomy from God. They wanted to be their own bosses. We all kind of have that nature that wants to. And that's idolatry. Idolatry is anything that you love and put ahead of God. Right. And we touched on this. But these believers on Mount Zion, they're also described as first fruits. Yeah, because they're the already victorious saints in heaven. The picture of the whole church is represented there by the 144,000. Because eventually all of God's people throughout all time will be there. Let's read on to Revelation 14 verses 6 to 8. Then I saw another angel directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. 
And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. What you just read covered two of the three angels in this section of scripture. We'll get to the third angel in a minute, but let's deal with the first two. The first one is going throughout all the earth with the eternal message of the good news of the gospel. God is merciful. This is one more chance to hear it, one more chance to repent, because the hour of judgment has come. The angel's also saying, fear God. What it really means is realize who he is and give him glory. This is kind of a message to believers. Fear God and not the beast. Don't take the mark of the beast just to feed your belly or the belly of your family. Trust God, the creator of heaven and earth and all that's in them. Rose, this is a real call to perseverance under tribulation. A a call to obey God and not cave to worldly pressures and temptations. And they're tough words for some of the seven churches to hear and certainly for us to hear. But that's the point of this book is to help you persevere during these times. Right. And the second angel is taking this even further, mentioning Babylon. First century Christians would have recognized Babylon as the city that opposes God. It's the personification of sin and indulgence. Anything that's worshipped other than God. Anything you cherish other than God, anything that takes preeminence from God is an idol and it's sinful. Again, this isn't necessarily just talking about sexual immorality in and of itself. The words sexual immorality are used here like they are throughout the Old Testament, especially in the prophetic books, to mean anything we love more than God, which is committing spiritual adultery. Yeah, I'll give a few examples. Hosea 1-2 is just one verse of many that show this. Hosea 1-2 says, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Sin is fun. Satan tempts us with sin that's intoxicating. He tempts us with things that are addictive, like the wine that's mentioned here. Well, if it wasn't addictive or fun, who would do it? That's exactly right. You wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun. So, you know, for some, that sin might be working just one extra hour that eventually turns into two just to buy something for pleasure when your family would be better off with your attention at home. It could be taking that first peek at pornography that leads into more. It's really anything that's sinful, not just sex. And this angel's call is a warning to the unsaved that this worldly stuff is going to go away, so they need to repent. Don't be deceived by fleeting worldly pleasure and end up in unending torment. This angel is also sending out the call for God's people to obey God in all circumstances. And he gives a reason. Babylon has fallen. There's no victory in sinful worldly pleasures or in disobeying God. None at all. Right. Most people know that Moses was an Israelite that was rescued from the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter and raised by her. But eventually, he gave up that life. And according to Hebrews 11, 24 to 26, it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. And that's the mindset Christians need to have. 
Jesus says the same thing on the Sermon on the Mount. We just did a series on it. He wants and deserves single-minded devotion, trust, and for us to obey. There's no cheap grace. And this isn't works-based salvation. This is how Christians fight Satan by not committing sin and by doing the work we're supposed to do. Exactly. And that's a good point you made because sin can be sin of commission or sin of omission when we don't do what we're supposed to do. Right. So let's move on to the third angel I mentioned earlier. Uh, We're going to start at verse 9 and I'll read it. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. There's a lot to cover here. And there is. So he's telling the saints what's going to happen to the wicked. Chris, we said at the beginning today that Jesus gives believers a reason to have hope. Reasons that might be shocking to some. Well, here's a shocking one. Have hope because God is going to bring judgment on the wicked. Some people struggle with the fact that God's going to bring judgment on anyone. And here's God telling his people that it's a reason to have hope and a reason to endure. Yeah, like you said, God's not only kind and merciful, but he's just. The Babylon wine is gone and now the wicked will drink the wine of God's wrath. That's the cup of wrath that Jesus drank for all those who are his. That means all those who trust that he did that for them for the forgiveness of their sin. But the wicked are going to drink it themselves. Let's talk about a few other things this angel says. First, the wicked will be tormented with fire and sulfur. So is hell going to be literally burning sulfur or is that symbolic? Maybe, maybe not. But even if the description is totally symbolic, it obviously is going to be excruciating. And let's talk about something else that people say all the time, and that is hell is a place without God, meaning hell is a place devoid of anything good. But Chris, that's not what this text says. No, it's not. Second Thessalonians 1.9 is used to uphold that idea because some versions say something similar to they will suffer eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. But the idea of being away from God's presence doesn't mean that he won't be there. It means the opposite of seeing the face of the Lord, which is an expression that denotes blessedness. The wicked certainly will be away from God's blessing. Instead, they're going to get God's full strength, anger, and wrath. And they're going to be tormented in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. There's no escaping God and being left alone. He's right there. The text says so. And how long does it say this kind of torment lasts? It says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Again, tough words and should make you want to go out and preach the gospel. Yeah. This brings up another important point. There are some, even some good theologians, good in other areas, but not in this area, who believe in something called annihilationism. It's sometimes called conditional immortality. That belief says that you're immortal if you're saved. A believer will go on to eternal life and live with God forever, which is true. 
But unbelievers are snuffed out, or in other words, annihilated, meaning that they cease to exist. That's why it bothers me when pastors say, come to Jesus for eternal life and just lead it there. It's misleading. Annihilationism is a very comforting thought to the unsaved. It's comforting to think, well, I'll enjoy my life on earth however I want to, and then I'll have to suffer the you know, wrath of God for a little while, but eventually I'll just cease to exist. They get this partly from the word destruction, meaning destruction of the wicked. But destruction means punishment in those passages, not ceasing to exist. And they also get the idea from the smoke rising forever passage about Edom, which is found in Isaiah 34. That phrase is hyperbole in Isaiah, so they take this one to be hyperbole also. But it's not hyperbole here. Hell is real. How could God judge sin without it? Some things in Revelation are symbolic for sure, but as Vody Bauckham points out in his sermon on this chapter, just like it talks about the earth, and we know the earth is real, hell is real. There's a lot of passages throughout the Bible that talk about eternal punishment of the wicked in hell, and nobody talks about hell more than Jesus. Right. In Matthew 13, 41 to 42, Jesus says, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't get much clearer then. Their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. It's sobering. This section ends with the beatitude. It says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They may rest from their labors. Again, blessed believers who get to rest are contrasted with unbelievers in hell who'll be away from God's blessing and have no rest. And Chris, I'll finish up the rest of the chapter. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like the son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. Well, this is Jesus coming on the white cloud with a gold crown and a sharp sickle. Another angel calls out to him and tells him it's time to put his sickle to work and reap the harvest of the earth because it's fully ripe. Now, first, this seems kind of strange because the angel's telling Jesus what to do. But we have to remember here, God the Father is really the one behind the command. So it's really not weird. Right. And swing his sickle is exactly what Jesus does. He's reaping all the elect who were still living. These saints are the wheat in the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus takes the remaining members of his church who are still on earth up to heaven to join the first fruit saints already there on Mount Zion. This is the ingathering of believers at the very end, right before the final judgment and the new heavens and the earth. But there's another harvest, Rose, the harvest of the wicked. The wicked are described as grape clusters fully ripe. 
They drunk their wine to the very dregs. They are full of their wickedness. And they're thrown into the wine press of God's wrath. And there's a lot. There's a lot of them. The amount of blood described that flows from the wine press is a lot. Rose, this is a picture from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah 63, 1-6. This is the picture of Jesus that many churches leave out. I'd like to read it. It's called The Lord's Day of Vengeance. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like he who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And those words should make your blood chill. Yep. But the nations have trampled Christ's church. Now he's trampling them. Is this hyperbole? Probably, but it's a picture God uses not only here, but in other places like Joel 3. It's a picture of horrible suffering under the wrath of God. So, Chris, is there actually a human wine press? Probably not, but we never say anything is definitely not when it comes to God. Exactly. But it is real intense and it is real horrible suffering as if a human was thrown into a wine press made to rip their body apart and squish out their blood and not to be morbid, but we need to understand what's at stake here. And their suffering goes on and on forever. You know, most people believe there is some sort of hell. They want to believe that because they want to see really bad people go there and suffer. People like Hitler. But they don't want to see people like themselves. But no one's righteous enough to please God. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And for those who might be thinking there is no God, well, Psalm 14.1 says you're a fool, you're corrupt, and your acts are vile. And if anyone's listening who doesn't think there's a God, I suggest you humbly ask God to help you with your unbelief and that you ask God to forgive you of your sin because Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. There's no excuse and there's no escape. So I'll ask this. What defines you? Whose name is tattooed on your forehead? Do you belong to God or to Satan? There are warnings for unbelievers to repent here and there's warnings for believers too. This book was written to Jesus' church. Go back to the descriptions of the seven churches and see, do you fit in those descriptions? I'm saying this to us two, too. Definitely. We're all Christ's church. He rescued us from the wine press of wrath and eternal punishment in hell. We need to stand strong against sin and spread the gospel. I'm going to end today with a verse from Romans 12. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. Amen to that. That's where we need to end today. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review and a rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Transcripts for this podcast and all our others are available at www.buzzsprout.com backslash 615385. If you have any questions or feedback, contact us at Proverbs 910 Ministries at gmail.com. Have a blessed day, everyone.